Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. Tonight's topic for this podcast is Mormonism and sex. More than just for making babies, but less than anything goes. In today's world, ideas about sex are ever-present and often confusing. Sexual relations can bond couples together or be abusive, manipulative, and unhealthy. Like most faiths, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints considers the creation of life as sacred, but it also views sexual intimacy as an expression of love. The Utah-based faith does not preach sex as quote, original sin, but it also sometimes sends conflicting, even harmful messages about human desire to members, producing guilt and shame. There are also endless questions about homosexuality and same-sex marriage, the evils of pornography, and what constitutes healthy sexuality. We have invited three Latter-day Saint guests to discuss the wide-ranging issues surrounding sexuality and Mormonism. They are Jennifer Finlayson Fife, a licensed therapist who specializes in working with Latter-day Saint couples on sexuality and relationship issues. Michael Austin, a university administrator in Indiana who has a deep interest in Mormon theology, particularly the nature of sexuality. And Jacob Hess, a Logan-based mindfulness teacher and writer at Public Square Magazine who has explored the problems of pornography. Welcome, Jennifer, Michael, and Jacob. Thank you, Peggy. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Okay, let's start with Jennifer. What is your view of the church's theology of the body? Well, I I talk about this quite a bit. I think we have a pretty remarkable theology, um, especially among Christian interpretations of the body, in that not only do we not see the body as an impediment to spirituality, um, but in fact, we see the body as necessary for spiritual progression. And I think that's not just to become like our parents in heaven. That is not to just literally mimic them in terms of embodiment, but in fact, so that we can learn how that that our spiritual capacity is dependent upon the ability to choose and to act and to feel and to love through our embodiment. So I think it's very key to our... Uh, wisdom and our ability to develop as uh, human beings. So in a word, a fairly positive view of the body, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you've already mentioned this a little bit, but how is that different from some other Christian faiths? Well, I'm not an expert, of course, in other theologies, but, you know, I I taught for a little while at Boston College, which is a Jesuit or Catholic school. There was in the students I was teaching human sexuality a lot more in their essays around this sense that the body interferes with spirituality, that sexuality is an impediment. You know, Christian aestheticism, it's the same thing of kind of denying sensuality as a way to get closer to God. 
And, uh, you know, of course, we have some of that through fasting, and we certainly think there's aspects of self-control and self-regulation that have to do with spiritual development, but not a denial of our sensuality and, and pleasure. Uh, so, Michael and Jacob, what do ancient scriptures say about sex? We should start with you, Michael. Um, not very much, actually. Uh, I think that you, you certainly have some denunciations in the Old Testament of people for certain sexual perversions, but it's not a major component of the Law of Moses. It's not a major component of the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ said very little about sex in the New Testament, um, which doesn't mean that we don't have the basis for a theology of sexual ethics, uh, because there are a whole lot of other principles that both the Old and the New Testament talk a lot about. Uh, but as far as what constitutes sinfulness and sexuality and what constitutes righteousness and sexuality, uh, we don't have a lot of scriptural basis to go on in either the Old or the New Testaments. Well, what do you say about that, Jacob? I think Michael's right, and I thought your answer was lovely, Jennifer. I would just add, cleave unto, the command to cleave unto each other between Adam and Eve. You can read as a, are coming together in, a, in the most intimate of ways, but you're right, it often shows up as causing trouble throughout scripture <laughs> uh, what does scripture say about um marriage per se is 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 marriage uh, the way modern modern people think about it uh reflected in ancient scripture i i would say not to the extent that we see it right now. There certainly are services and bonding services and things that are like marriage in, in the Old Testament. Uh, much of that culture was polygamous. Um, then you have in the New Testament, you have Roman Empire culture, and and there certainly is a marriage convention there, but, and that is that is Roman. It's not Judeo-Christian, but that ends up becoming the basis of, of Christian society. Uh, and then it, it becomes really important uh, throughout the Middle Ages and, and into uh, into the Renaissance and the Enlightenment when when the main focus is making sure that the property gets inherited by the right people. So marriage becomes extremely important uh, in the development of the Christian world. Uh, but what we call what we call marriage is not terribly recognizable in either the old or the New Testaments. Certainly the idea that our partner is supposed to fulfill every need and um, be our perfect match, the, that, that romantic ideal uh, doesn't show up. The, the idea that we are to draw together with a help meet one who is equal in power and have, as Adam with Eve, that shows that's there right from the beginning of scripture. What about homosexuality? What does ancient scripture have to say about that? I think you've got um, you've got a couple of statements in the Old Testament in Leviticus condemning uh, homosexuality. 
and a whole lot of other things, you know, touching a woman while she's menstruating. Um, there are all sorts of things that that are uh, forbidden by by Jewish law. In the New Testament, again, a reference or two, but it's not something that's really discussed a lot. Um, in either of the testaments or or in the book of mormon uh or the doctrine of covenants either so we have we have only a, f a handful of scriptures to go on and i think that those are are very problematic because they occur with lots of other prohibitions that we don't observe now jacob anything else to add to that Okay, this is a question uh, for all three of you, and Jennifer, you can start. Um, but uh, members uh, seem to hear a lot of messages from the pulpit and in lessons about, oh, I'm just going to call them the so-called no-nos of sex, outside of marriage, those kinds of things. Yet the church handbook states that, quote, sexual relations within marriage are divinely approved not only for the purpose of procreation, but also as a way of expressing love and strengthening emotional and spiritual bonds between husband and wife. Do you think the church's approach, teachings, and teachings reinforce that more positive kind of sentiment? I I do. I mean, I think that it's all there. I I, I think you, if you go back as early as you know, um, Parley P. Pratt and James Talmadge and so on, they were certainly compared to the larger social ethic, really pro-sexuality, pro-body, pro-embodiment, um, and I think that we give a lot of restrictions and then there is this acknowledgement that sexuality is for marriage it is a good thing it is for loving and being loved so i think we uh, you know i certainly grew up hearing that idea that in marriage it was a, was and could be a wonderful part of life I certainly think, though, for many members that the focus on the restriction and the anxieties around that make that transition into it being permissible, a an awkward transition, a challenging one. I think that sometimes has to do with how their families related to the topic of sexuality, not just what they heard in church. but. I think we have within our theology the capacity to articulate a view of intimacy, marriage, and sexuality that's very um, hopeful and progressive and really uh, something that helps us develop in our spiritual capacity. But I don't think that's currently as well articulated as it could be. Michael, what do you say to that? Um, I think there, we have a little bit of a problem here in our theology in that most of our theology around sexuality and intimacy was developed in a polygamous culture. It was developed when plural marriage was seen as God's law. And that was contrary to the law of the land, contrary to civil law. And so for the first you know, um, 50 years or so of the church's existence, when when a lot of the revelations were coming, when a lot of the theology was being developed, uh, we had a, a marriage system which was fundamentally in conflict with civil law. And we developed uh, we developed a lot of our understanding of the purpose of sexuality and the purpose of raising children in that culture. When, when that changed, uh, 
I, I think that the church began to adopt some very bright lines because bright lines are important if you're going to police behavior. Uh, marriage is a very, very bright line. It's not an unproblematic line. I, I think it's a fairly good stand-in for committed relationships. Um, you know, marriage does give you uh, that sense of commitment. But I think we've, uh, as a culture, made that line brighter than it really is. Uh, within marriage, sex is good. Outside of marriage, it is always bad. And what that did, I think, is it it sort of outsourced um, theology to the state, to the to the civil authorities, and we didn't think very much about sexuality for a long time. Um, well into the 21st century, we we kind of allowed the the state function, we allowed the civil marriage to be the bright line, the determiner between the sin next to murder and uh, the divinely sanctioned sacrament of marriage. Um, and then when Obergefell came along, the Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage, that became extremely problematic because now we have the civil law uh, sanctifying a, a kind of marriage that the church does not sanctify. And I, I do not think we've had uh, the theology in place to deal with what is moral and what is immoral about sexuality in the absence of that really big bright line called civil marriage. Jacob, let me ask you, so what do you think about the church's messaging about the, the well, I'll just call the positive aspects or the sanctioned aspects of, of, of sex, like within marriage versus uh, the prohibitions against, you know, any kind of sexual behavior outside of marriage? I think Jennifer makes a great point that sometimes we can be um, more on the defensive. I just got back from coaching my boys' soccer game, and we lost big time, and we mostly played defense the whole time. And sort of the world can be so relentless in coming after us with its ideology and doctrine that sometimes we're, we're watch out for this and don't do that. And so I like I like her your emphasis, Jennifer, on on more we can do to posit to cultivate the positive. How how do you think how do you think the church could do that? Well the beauties and the joys and the sweetness and you know giving equal attention to all the goodness that people can look forward to versus just you know the cautions. I think you're absolutely right about how people might go into marriage concerned about that. Uh, to Michael's point, I do think it's right that scripture only lightly touches on it, but I would I would push back a little on characterizing it as as if our theology just developed within the last, you know, 150 years. I believe it it was from the beginning that this was laid laid down. And um, so I was thinking about Michael's point. Um, thanks for the question. So a, a question for you, a, a little bit blunter question, just, and, and Jennifer and maybe uh, Jacob and Michael, feel free to chime. What's wrong with premarital sex? I mean, Go ahead, Jennifer. Do you, do you want me to, I mean, I can give a view. I mean, I think you, one way to think about uh, the value of marital sexuality is that it's a do no harm standard. Now, well, you can clearly still do plenty of harm with sexuality within marriage, but it's it, one way to think about it is you're minimizing the negative impact when you're making a full commitment to another 
person. There's many ways we could talk about it or think about it. You know, if you are creating a role-based marriage or creating a family in which one can reproduce and that's sort of mitigating the risk to children that they're in a committed context. There's also, I think, the moral aspects um, in some ways of elevating the value and the meaning of sexuality by making it special and making it a certain kind of meaning through committing to one other person. I mean, I think as human beings, we're driven to pair bond. We want a special person one other meaningful person in our lives and to kind of elevate that expression to that level kind of actually makes it more beautiful. It allows it to be anyway. Now, I mean, I certainly work with a lot of people that work from a much more operate from a much more fear-based position around sexuality, you know, accommodating their husband's needs idea that it never gets off the ground. It never is able to be something that's an expression of knowing and being known. It's, it never really becomes an expression of love. So of course, plenty of, it, this is no guarantee, but I do think it is a potential meaning because I, one of the things I teach and talk about a lot is that marriage, the idea of committing to another person is, it puts you into a kind of tension in which it, it, it pressures your development, your moral and relational development. And adding your sexuality to that is a part of um, increasing that pressure on you dealing with who you are, your limitations, your impact on another person, your capacity to actually love another person, your tolerance and capacity for intimacy. So there's a lot of value in my mind of limiting your choices to pressure development. Um, so those are many thoughts there, but <laughs> I, I, you know, I at least you know to articulate in the teaching that I do how one can relate to marriage as a as a developmental mechanism, not a prison. Anyone have any other thoughts on that, Jacob or Michael? I think that's a, a very good point, and um, I I think that marriage is a is a good line, it, but it's a stand-in for something. You know, what we're really looking at is a committed relationship where people are committed to each other and the intimacy takes place um, in, in a, an environment of safety and an environment of commitment. Marriage doesn't always have that. Um, it often does. Uh, and people who aren't married don't always lack that. And let me just give an example uh, from my own life. I was a Spanish-speaking missionary in Central California, the San Joaquin Valley, Fresno, Modesto, Stockton, uh, all of those places in California that are really hot and uh, are politically more like Alabama. But um, <laughs> but many times, multiple times, more than 10 on my mission, uh, we were working with uh, couples and families where uh, one of the spouse or one of the couples had a spouse in a country that did not permit divorce. Sometimes they had been in a family unit for 10, 20, 30 years, but they could not get married because they could not get divorced because in El Salvador or Peru or Guatemala, uh, they, they had spouses and, and they could not secure a divorce. We were never allowed to baptize those people. 
Um, but I don't think that in those cases, the, uh, the lack of a civil marriage was indicative of a lack of real commitment. So I, I think that it's, it's good to look at marriage as, uh, as a, a strong indicator of commitment. I don't think the line is as bright as, as we often think it is, but it certainly is a line. When sexual experiences are shared without the commitment of hearts and minds, it's a point that Elder Holland's made. There can be some real damage as people just move on. I loved my time at the University of Illinois, but I watched in real time students I, uh, in my classes go out in, the, in their the hookup culture. And it was just well known. People didn't date. They just went to the bars and went home together. And there's lots of research now on, on what that means over the long term for people, um, especially women, but even the men, kind of how they, they get into this pattern. And it's, it's not a good, good long-term picture. So Jennifer, how do LDS couples learn healthy sexuality if they are just told primarily don't do anything, including passionate kissing before marriage? And then the floodgates open and it's supposed to be all okay. How do you go from not even passionate kissing to full-on intimate relations? Well, that's um, it's definitely been a desperate need, I think, for a lot of people to have some thoughtful um, information about how to make that transition. I think a lot of people have lacked it, not known where to get it in a legitimate way, been afraid of going to outside sources, sometimes going to a bishop and being told they should, you know, fast and pray and attend the temple to address these issues. And, you know, a lot of people are working with sort of default meanings that are rather destructive, you know, and meaning that you know, many of the women I've worked with, their mothers said to them, you know, never tell him no, or he'll go astray, or he'll look at porn. And so it immediately gets put into not an intimacy frame, but a servicing frame. Women's sexuality exists to manage men's sexuality. And so there's, you know, often been no resource. And I think for a lot of people, it's meant a lot of suffering. Of course, a lot of Couples have also been able to kind of sort that out because, you know, in my dissertation research, I was interviewing women on exactly this, that transition from pre-marriage into marriage. And, you know, the women who really thrived had internalized an idea. They were much clearer that they were equal to men, equal to, to their spouse, that the sexuality was in, as important for them as it was for their husband, that their desires mattered as much as a husband's did. And, you know, they had come by these messages in different ways, their family ethic or different things that experiences they'd had. But when they related to marriage and sexuality on that sort of even um, playing field, those couples did the best. Those women did the best in terms of creating an intimate relationship that was desirable to them. Um, so, but if you have some of those organizing meanings that are off and you don't have a way to see that they even are existing and infecting your ability to create an intimate relationship, a lot of good people have suffered and suffer around that. 
Uh, follow up a little bit on that. Um, what do you think about the church's messaging, uh, speaking about women being responsible for men's sexuality, messages about modesty, and also uh, female desire? Uh, is yes. it men have desire, women don't? Yes. What do you think about those messages yes. coming from the church? Right. So if you go to the pure theology, I mean, it's it's obviously there's probably some argument on what sort of our theology versus culture, but, you know, the law of chastity is a single standard, not a double standard that, you know, it's, there's no more justification for sexual sin in a man than in a woman. There is no theology to suggest that it isn't equally important for women. The clitoris is only for female pleasure. It serves no one else's needs. Right? So that's all there. But I think there is culture that gets communicated through the messaging um, unwittingly. Um, and so the messaging around modesty, in my view, has been off. It's not that modesty, as in living modestly with, your, with the good things you have in your life, is inherently a virtue. But the idea that women should control men's sexuality through the way they, uh, through covering up their sexuality, teaches women that they're responsible for something that they can't actually control. They can control the virtue of their choices, but they can't control others. And also teaches women and men that men are not trustworthy, that men can't handle their sexuality. So that kind of messaging is a setup for that what I see in a lot of my clients, women feel that they have to manage their husband's sexuality by having sex with him so he doesn't look at porn and and that and it interferes with any possibility of it ever becoming intimate because it's about fear management mostly so i i think that messaging is there and the and the clearer we get about it and shift it the better off we'll be so uh, speaking of <laughs> this in your workshops, you talk about self-soothing. Do you recommend masturbation before or after marriage? And the men can answer this as well. Well, I, I don't know if I would say I recommend it, but I certainly think that there is value in knowing your own body, and especially for women who've never been able to orgasm, who feel like they're on stage and feel deeply frustrated, like the, the sort of performance pressure it doesn't go well. So for women who've never orgasmed, I certainly would encourage them if, you know, they need to do what they feel right about and they need to take it up with their own conscience and their own uh, relationship um, with God. But that, that to come to know your own body, to know its capacity for pleasure, so that you have more ability to be in an intimate relationship. You know, the women who really transitioned into marriage happily in my research, they actually all had masturbated. Now, as adolescents, they had repented, perhaps they had stopped doing it. But what had happened for them is that they had taken on a sense of ownership of their sexuality in that process. They knew what they were going for in marriage, but they also had a sense that it was theirs, not their future husbands. The women who didn't do well had this sense that their sexuality belonged to a future husband, that their genitals were half his. And so there was this kind of caretaking and disownership 
that does not work for creating passion. It might work for getting through the act of sex, but not for creating a choice-based, desire-based marriage. So I'm not so much pro-masturbation as I'm against shaming it and, and not thinking about what the goal is and what's going to create an intimate marriage. That's the goal. It's one thing to be looking at porn, masturbating, creating some kind of fetishistic narrow relationship to sexuality that's a different meaning i'm interested in what allows you to embrace and receive the gift of your sexuality and be capable of creating an intimate partnership so guys what do you think i think what jennifer said is fantastic i don't have anything to add really <laughs> there's a lot of wisdom go ahead uh, well, um, if I must offer an opinion here, I, I think that, um, <laughs> that with masturbation, we have a good example of what I see as the, the problem that we create, not by having moral values, uh, but by policing behaviors uh, in a way that I, I think produces a lot of guilt and a lot of anxiety and, and not a lot of reflection and, and not a lot of... Um, of understanding about sexual morality. I mean, I, I'm not going to uh, take an opinion on whether or not people should masturbate, but I think that 12-year-olds should not be regularly asked about that in interviews. Uh, I think that, that guilt and shame should, should not be part of that discourse. And I think that, um, that, 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 kind of policing of behavior has has mainly just caused a lot of people to spend uh, their their late teens and early 20s being miserable and feeling inadequate and not not for a theologically defensible reason but because um, because there is this this tendency to want to police behavior in ways that that are not theologically sound I, I agree with that. And I think it does a lot of damage to not just the women, but to men also, right? It's, it's that, I mean, we are quite behavioristic and there's some value in that when the younger children are to have, you know, clear standards, clear behavioral guidelines. It gives you some sense of where the boundaries are and, but Definitely, we need this larger theology, this larger perspective. Instead of shaming any of those sexual impulses and feelings that are super, I mean, I've said to parents, you know, something would be going wrong if your child wasn't having those feelings, wasn't one. I mean, th this is God given normal sexual development. And so if you start introducing lots of judgment and harshness, a 12 and 13 year old is not in a position to really understand it. They already feel strange as it is just because they're 12 and 13 and their body changing and this emerging sexuality, they already fear uh, that they are, you know, um, forever unworthy at this point because you, you know, this, the questions of self-doubt are so present at this point. So I think we need to be so much more careful and thoughtful around the messaging because I have so many 
you know, women can be more um, honest about their rejection and fear of sexuality because it's okay to be the low desire person, right? I think men, there's more pressure to kind of not expose or recognize how little ability one has had to really integrate and be at peace with their sexuality. So it can get expressed more through compulsive sexual behaviors, right, through kind of not less relational behaviors because the intimacy of it means you really need to be at peace with its existence. And I think we don't need to do this, but so many people have internalized a rejection of pleasure, a rejection of sensuality, that those sexual feelings and so on are a danger to their spiritual well-being. So I'm going to turn to a subject that's come up a couple of times already. Uh, talk about. Go ahead, Jacob. I just wanted to ask Michael for a clarification. I apologize for interjecting. The, that word policing has come up a couple of times. I think we're all on board with not wanting things to be harsh, right? When, when, when I think of policing, it's like, you know, walk around and catching people doing the wrong things. Is that what you're you're um, cautioning against or is it more? Because I, I, yeah. It's, it's more than that. I, something, uh, and I, I think I talked about this a little bit the last time I was on the show, um, and, and a little bit about my background. Uh, I've been the chief, the chief academic officer at uh, a Catholic school for eight years and a Methodist school for six years. So I, I have uh, had a lot of interaction with both Catholic and Protestant religions and with universities that are sponsored by Catholic and Protestant religions. And one thing that, I, that I've noticed a lot is that uh, when I worked at a, a Catholic university, um, the values, the, the teachings and the doctrines were very, very similar to those of, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, probably a little bit stricter when it came to sexual ethics because contraception was not permitted. Um, but there was not an attempt to enforce that behavior at the university um, or really in the church. You know, people weren't excommunicated when they did things wrong. They weren't disfellowshipped. Um, people who were out of harmony with the church's doctrines were still welcomed to the university and welcomed into the church under the assumption that, that if you're struggling with something, you need more fellowship and more communion, communion uh, with your fellow religionists and not less. So when, when I talk about policing, I'm talking about the apparatus that enforces sexual behavior um, through bishops interviews, mm -hmm. through excommunication, through disfellowship, through church discipline. Um, I, and I, I, you know, I, I don't want to say that's horrible, that's awful, but I, I do think everybody needs to recognize that it is very possible to have doctrines and have beliefs and to teach uh, morality and to teach sexual ethics and to, and to really believe things without enforcing that through, uh, through both university and ecclesiastical disciplinary procedures. Okay, Jacob, what do you think on that? Well, I, I appreciated the clarification. Um, I think all of that can happen in a harsh way, and, and that's troubling. What you call policing, I would sometimes refer to as just institutional uh, encouragement, right? Some kind of accountability. And I have also seen how that can be really helpful. I've um, worked with a lot of men who are 
finding deeper freedom from pornography and those little check-ins that have been helpful when they're gentle, you know, when they're not the harsh kind. So sorry to interrupt, Dave. No, that's fine, Jacob. And, and, and that's kind of touched on two topics that, that we want to touch on. And one of them is the interview process. Um, uh, it, it has implications for Temple Recommends membership among members. Uh, if you go to BYU, it has implications for getting going to school. Uh, might be a, a student job you have, perhaps even your student housing. Um, the church has guidelines about how interviews are supposed to be conducted, but we all hear uh, stories, of course, about sometimes those straying from those guidelines does that jacob i'll start with does the church probe too deeply into members sexual lives that hasn't been my experience what i've observed um the trauma literature um makes it pretty clear that the act of verbalizing what you've experienced and having a compassionate witness can help kind of deburden yourself and so course the christian idea of confession is is that like getting it out sharing it having somebody that hopefully is compassionate and supportive help you move on from it and not just carry that on your back so i think done right it can be very powerful jennifer what about you I mean, I agree with what Jacob's saying that to have spiritual mentors, to have trusted people you can talk to and turn to, that is, of course, different than, you know, a worthiness interview where you're being asked to come in and sort of account for your behavior. One is where you're seeking out some spiritual guidance saying, I feel I've sinned, I've betrayed my own values. I'm looking for help and support to get clearer inside of myself. So I think there's a different meaning there. I mean, I, I, I guess I acknowledge the tension that's in this question in that, you know, I did see among students at the university, they had the belief but the behavior, they were much less compliant with the belief. I think for at least many of the women, they had a lot of shame around it. So you could argue if you have more support to actually follow through with the belief, you do better. Um, I do agree also, though, of course, with what Michael's saying, is there is a difference between support and a kind of sense of a of being monitored or judged, having things taken from you if you don't comply. So, you know, we we are we do certainly focus a lot on compliance as opposed to integrity. And I think there's again a developmental piece of this, but I think our theology supports integrity more than obedience as a framing, that we're developing into wiser beings and wiser actors. But we can certainly gravitate towards control and compliance as as a stand-in, in my opinion. But I don't have easy answers for the execution of this goal. <laughs> I think it's it's tricky. It really is. And we, and we know bishops might be asked questions that they didn't anticipate, too. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, we talked a little bit. Pornography has come up several times now. And, and the church has 
uh, although very clear about viewing pornography as wrong and bad, and uh, but their language has softened somewhat through the years, especially on the question as to whether porn consumption is an addiction. Um, uh, what's the best way for the church to message about pornography, do you think, uh, especially considering the range of maybe ages that they might be approaching uh, and speaking to? Um, so, so, Jennifer, can I start with you? Sure. Well, um, yeah, so, oh, let's see, it's such a big question. I have to think about it for just a second. I mean, I think, first of all, I think Elder Oaks did do this uh, in a talk a few years ago, which is in some ways to kind of normalize the fact that you can't really not observe porn or, you know, or sexual imagery. If, if you're on the internet or you're just awake, um, it's there. And the fact that it's there or that you've seen it or that you've found it even appealing does not mean you're a porn addict. So just kind of giving a little more, again, like something's going wrong if you don't feel any sexual feelings. So I think it's important to kind of normalize the draw of sexuality and the draw of sexual imagery. It's just we're wired to like it, men especially are. And um, so I think the more we can just make that normal, but then not be so much shaming as messaging what is our goal. Your, if your goal is to be in a loving, intimate relationship, is this behavior going to get you closer or farther from that goal? If you can help people decide what it is they want rather than what they're afraid of, Right. Don't eat too much. Don't eat sweets. Don't eat, you know, you know, you, it, it only makes you afraid of it and drive, drives you into extreme behavior. If you get a lot of shaming messages around food, for example, you're going to either be anorexic or compulsive in your consumption. And you see the same with sexuality. You see people that have so much anxiety about sexuality that they're in extreme behaviors of repression or, you know, compulsive behavior. And both are anti-spiritual, both you know, the difficult, there's difficulty, but it's so fundamental to our spiritual development to be able to actually integrate the pleasures of life, the pleasures of the body, but integrate them in a way that's in line with our morality, in ways that bless our life, in line with creating good within ourselves and within our relationships. That's a harder process. Many adults have not achieved it. That's why they're messaging in such fear-based ways, because they're afraid of it. But we need to grow ourselves up and grow up to meet our theology better and offer a theology of deeper integration, deeper wisdom, deeper joy. You can't have joy without pleasure. You can't have joy without wisdom integrated with pleasure. We need to articulate that ideal not so fear. You can warn against what's out there. You want to give your kids the ability to be um, discerning consumers of the messages around them, but you want to give them something to walk towards. And we have our the capacity to do this, and we need to do a better job of it for everyone's mental health and happiness in marriage. Jacob, you've written some uh, on this topic. So, what are your thoughts on this? I think you're, I think that word addiction can be heavy, especially for a teenager. And I've, I've seen parents freaking out like, oh, my teenager has an addiction. It does seem to me that there's been a bit of an um, overcorrection. It's sort of a denial of, oh, it's, it's not addictive. or it's, it, Shame is the problem, not, 
not compulsive use. And I've seen the sort of well-intentioned, let's not shame, kind of lead men who need a wake-up call <laughs> to just say, oh, I'll just work on my shame then. And so many of the men I've worked with and witnessed uh, acknowledging that they do have a compulsive pattern is a really core step in getting out of it. And if they never kind of say, I'm stuck, then they don't end up doing the inner work to get out of it. And I think Jennifer is absolutely right about the binge abstinence cycle, sort of like, I'm doing really great, I'm doing really great. No, no, I'm terrible, I'm awful. And in my experience, more of that, that gentle, mindful approach where what I encourage guys is after, after you've used, notice what's going on in your body and your mind. Pay attention to your relationships. Is this what you want? Is this really like the life you want? And, and in many cases, it's like, no, you know, this isn't, this isn't the way I want to be. This isn't the way I want to feel. And then their own experience, to, more to Jennifer's point, is teaching them rather than just the fear or, or some, just the external. They're like, my life, you know, I want it to be different. Okay, so switching topics a little bit, uh, for all three of you, um, what commandment are married monogamous same-sex couples breaking? And do you think same-sex marriage could fit in Mormon theology? Michael, let's start with you. Uh, so uh, this is a really important question, and um, I'm going to, uh, to just recommend a book here, which just came out, uh, Blair Osler's Queer Mormon Theology. Um, and I'm not just recommending that because I published it, but I did publish it, so I'm recommending it. Um, <laughs> but I, I call Blair the uh, the John Lennon of, of queer Mormonism because this whole book is and imagine what it would be like if we took these pieces of our theology rather than the pieces that we've taken and what could it look like? And, and I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Um, but to answer the question, I would like to talk a little bit about uh, Elder Holland's talk, the uh, souls, symbols, and sacraments. And Jacob mentioned that when we were bantering a little bit um, before uh, on email. Uh, and that's, I think that's a, a really good talk. And um, I was, actually in the audience at BYU in 1988 when he gave it. Uh, I was very impressed by it then. I went back and reread it before uh, before coming on. And uh, in there, he really does a good job of starting out with a theology of sexuality. And by that, I mean, he talks about what makes certain sexual acts wrong, sinful, and he talks about what makes certain sexual acts good and positive and moral and not just not bad, Sometimes we get in the trap of thinking that not bad is good, but what really makes makes sex uh, morally significant. Um, and when he talks about what makes sex wrong, uh, he makes the statement that God cares how we come into this world and he cares how we go out of this world. And that's why uh, sexual immorality or sex outside of marriage is such a, a, a great sin because it, it messes with the power to create life and risks bringing a life into uh, a situation that's not a committed marriage. 
Um, and that I think has always been in my life the the major wrong making element of certain sexual acts. Um, and that's not an issue with same sex marriage. I mean, that's just something that's not even on the table. The, the primary wrong making uh, sexuality or the primary wrong making element of, of the sexuality doesn't apply. Then he talks about what makes sex good. Uh, a committed relationship, the fact that people bind with each other, that they learn how to love somebody else wholly, that they experience physical and uh, and emotional and spiritual intimacy um, and in the context of a committed relationship. That actually is something that is relevant to same-sex couples as much as it is to couples of the opposite sex. Um, these these relationships are fulfilling. They're they're um, committed. They're both emotionally and physically intimate. And so, when I ask the question, "Is there a way to incorporate uh, a same-sex marriage into Mormon theology?" I think that what we often do is we make a suboptimization argument. We say that this is not good because it doesn't bring children into the world, and that is suboptimal. But what the church really asks people to do, people uh, who are are uh, gay or queer in some way. Um, ask them to live a life of complete aloneness, a lack of intimacy and complete celibacy, rather than enter into a committed long-term same-sex relationship. And I don't see any, using Elder Holland's um, talk there, which is one of the great examples we have of a theology of sexuality, I don't see any rationale for excommunicating loving couples in same-sex relationships uh, who are living monogamously according in a, in a legally sanctioned marriage uh, under the same terms that people in, in heterosexual relationships are living. I think that, um, that we have got to acknowledge that in our theology, that is not doing any harm and it's doing a significant amount of good, and it's better than uh, than what the church offers as an alternative to to people of that orientation. So, I what I fear is that um, rather than a theology of sexuality, we've settled for a theology of obedience here, and just said God says you shouldn't do that, don't do it. Uh, we will excommunicate you, and I actually do not think that's very theologically sound. Jacob, do you have thoughts about that? And Jennifer? I would push back just a little on Michael's uh, characterization. I, I spoke to Ty Mansfield before this, and I said, well, you know, what's one thing you would say? Because I think you should be on this instead of me. <laughs> he said, sometimes the well-intentioned um, efforts, some progressive voices make it very difficult for people like Ty and Jeff Benyon, dear friends of mine, who, who want to follow the covenant path as best they can. Both, both of them are experienced same-sex attraction, identify as gay, and are married to women and are happy. So I don't, I don't think that it's helpful to kind of cast it as celibacy or, you know, uh, leave the church and, and enter into... Um, uh, a gay marriage. <laughs> that being said, um, when my brother passed away, um, my advisor, Wendy, um, uh, brought me into her home with her partner and just loved me to death. 
when I was in graduate school. And I have experienced the beauty and love that, that can be felt and experienced in her marriage. And I think, you know, there's, you're making a lot of great points there. When the question came up, the same question you asked in graduate school, I, my answer hasn't changed. I, I think it is helpful to, to say, for us, it's not just the Bible says so, or even this, the prophet says so, or the proclamation says so. My understanding, I believe, is that God is our mother and our father. And so developmentally, like Jennifer is pointing out, it's kind of like, where do you want to go? How do you want to develop? And so for us, the family wasn't just a product of this industrial age. It goes all the way back as like the place we're supposed to become like them. And so are my, are my gay friends in, in my couples learning some of those lessons? Sure, yes. And I agree that in a monogamous committed gay relationship, many of those hard lessons can be learned. Uh, I think of John Gustav Rathal and, and how loving and good he is, you know, as a man. So I wish there was kind of space for both and um, support for people to kind of find uh, what, what the Spirit's guiding them to do. Jennifer, do you have a comment on that? Um, yes, I have a lot of thoughts. I'm just going to think here for a minute. I, I, I mean, I, I do want to agree with Jacob on the fact that sometimes these conversations are so um, oversimplifying of the the choices that gay members of the church are trying to grapple with around how to live their lives with some integrity and um be able to to be members in good standing and you know that sometimes people who choose to who are able to i don't think everyone who is um attracted to the same sex is able to marry heterosexually some people can do that and do it successfully and do it well but uh, you know for those who choose that path a lot of times they will then feel judged by others for having not sort of claimed their identity. And I, I think those conversations can be simple-minded and unfair. That said, I, I would say, you know, I appreciate your comments about that, Michael. I've never thought about it in the way you're saying. I do understand when we kind of think of a mother and father in heaven, we think about that is the role model. So it's heterosexual. I do think there's something about this sort of masculine and feminine synergy, syner, you know, the synergistic quality of, of that. But I think a lot of uh, gay and lesbian relationships have that, you know, they're just they, basically people are attracted to the kind of energy and tendencies that they don't have. And so I think in committed loving relationships, whether heterosexual or not, that the commitment and the investment in creating a solid us in a creating an intimate partnership is the mechanism that's driving development, not the gender of your partner. So I, I, um, I understand that it challenges our traditional ways of thinking. The thing that's the hardest for me in being able to align myself with our traditional thinking is that it's, it's, it's how to say it, it's like, it's too big of an ask. I mean, if, if it could be just about choice, and I recognize some people have more choices than others in this, right? 
But if you can just choose to not be attracted to your same sex, well, so many people would in fact choose it and they would choose because there's a lot of social costs for not. So when you can't make the choice to make it a moral, a moral issue, I think really compromises us and compromises the people that are asked to make a choice in that way. And I, I don't think this is just about sex. Some people say like, why are you making sex such a big deal? It's not about sex. It's about who you love. It's about choosing that special person in your life to create a life with and to say you can't do it because you're attracted to the wrong person. It feels unloving. I, I can't reconcile it personally. I think it's because I know too many people who would do anything to change it and they cannot. And it's, um, I've not been able to make it feel true or right to me. Okay, so let's, let's open it up to our um, listeners. If we have questions from any of you, please put your questions in the chat and we can ask them of our, our panelists. I'd like to ask a question. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I'm uh, I'm 88 years old now, but I remember for decades uh, becoming a young adult and through my adulthood, the church was quite, I'm going to say, hostile. Really. Not approving of birth control. Uh, the subject hasn't really come up much in our your discussion this evening. So I guess I, I'll let me repeat that. Is the church more open today to birth control than it was uh, decades ago? Yes. Is that the question? Yes. Anyone want to take that? Yes. They're much more open to birth control than they were in the past. Yes. Um, I, I think that there's still a sense that you should have as many children as, as you can support. Um, but once you make that decision, I think there's no problem with chemistry or physics to make that happen. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just have to be math. <clears throat> any other any other uh uh, I think John so, wrote something. No. Shall I just read this? Um, I see the issue of our theology not compatible with same sex because ultimately they don't feel they can achieve the heterosexual ideal. It is implicit that they are, quote, broken in some way and will need to be fixed. Because it is more of an identity rather than just viewed as behavior, it creates immense conflict. As an LDS leader, I don't feel I have a place to take them, really. I guess this goes to the previous, um, I'm not sure mm -hmm. this is a question or a comment. Mm -hmm. um, What's your, do you have any comments about what's being asked here though? Yeah, do you? An LDS leader who feels like can't offer much. I mean, I would agree that as soon as we identify with something, it becomes a little bit harder to work with it. That's kind of a mindfulness Buddhist idea that the identification kind of locks it in, whether it's about sexuality or I'm a night person or I'm a type A, you know. Um, and from a mindfulness perspective, if we can just observe the emotions, behaviors, and the whole experience without putting either 
an overwhelmingly this is all good or this is all bad kind of just like watch the whole thing and we can work with it in different ways that is one of my concerns is that we can kind of lock in the language by just identifying with it this is who i am versus uh the buddhists that i teach with tend to like talk about identity more mysteriously like we're gonna plumb the depths of who we are forever you know and there's this bottomless expanse and i kind of wish we had more of that versus locking it in then there is room for that development and the evolution that we all go through and from a christian perspective we are all kind of broken in some way, right? We all have things that we need God's help to move out of. Um, that's what I would say. I mean, I, I do agree that we're in a culture currently that's very identity-focused, group-focused. Um, and I think there has been value in the fact that it, it allows there to be more self-awareness and many people who were growing up and knew that they were attracted to their same sex felt so there was no place to articulate it, understand it, even kind of be able to get some air to look at it because it was so wrong. So we are in a culture where there's much, much more room. And I think we've maybe even overcorrected because a lot of times, you know, kids that 12 and 13 are feeling like they have to sort of claim an identity. And I think it's premature, but where I would push back on it though, Jacob is just that I don't, when you, it's one thing to say, like, you don't have to rush to an identity and let's take some time and, and sort of understand who you are and what you're experiencing and where, but there is still a goal, which is that you don't go in that direction and that overarching goal makes it very hard to know how do you really morally advise? How do you advise and really help somebody when you're basically saying you need to deny this aspect of yourself to be morally right? And I, I think that's, I, I feel for bishops um, because we don't have really an alternative. We don't have another option. and. You know, I've, I've just seen people, good people suffering under that too much. I think that for many years, for most of the time I was growing up, it was an open debate in the church whether homosexuality was a behavior or an orientation. Uh, and I think the prevailing uh, opinion of most church leaders was that it was a behavior that people could choose and could could choose not to engage in. Um, I don't believe that that's true anymore. I have not heard that over the pulpit. I have not heard that in general conference for many years. There does seem to be an awareness uh, now uh, throughout the church. I think that debate is over, and it's understood that this is that that uh, homosexuality is an orientation. It's how people are, and if that's broken, then we've we've got a real theological problem because it's God's fault. You know, if, if God made people these this way, if this is how uh, how an omnipotent creator created human beings, and if it's broken, then we've got a really serious theological problem that I think is much more difficult than the kind of open theology that uh, that Blair imagines in her book. 
act. I mean, I think it's easier to uh, to open up a space for loving, committed gay couples in our theology than it is to deal uh, with a God who sends certain people down broken and reprobated and condemned uh, to never be able to live the the ideal. That's that's an extremely uh, Calvinistic point of uh, predestinarian view that is not part of our theology at all. I'm, I'm of course, sympathetic to the you know, people feeling ashamed and constantly living in shame. I would only add that one of the most despairing messages I think we could send to people is that what you're feeling, however you are, what you're experiencing is how you will always be, like no matter what their experience is. For me, that's the hope of Jesus's message that tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. And like, there's this ongoing adventure of of who I'm going to be. Like I yelled at my kids last week, I want to be better next week sort of thing. So I think that gets lost in maybe an overcorrection towards like identity. This is who you are and who you always will be and make sure everybody else agrees with you, you know? What about that ongoing uh, evolution of all of us? So do we have any any other questions or, or comments? Yeah, I have a question. Okay. This is Jay Griffith, Jacob and Michael. I know you both. I love you Hi, both. Hi, Jay. Hello. Yeah. Hi, Jay. Thanks for being here, all of you. Um, Jacob, you know, we've discussed this quite a bit <laughs> over the years. So what you just said, I'd like you to think about. Maybe you can create a steel man argument opposite of what you believe. So you just said how, how, well, if we could always have, t tomorrow doesn't have to be like today, that we can envision ourselves, and I would say the church different. Is that possible for you to envision that, that, that we would, the leaders of the church would re-envision that proclamation? And as Patrick Mason recently said on a Faith Matters podcast, you might have heard that, that the current status of the church with this policy doctrine with our queer brothers and sisters is unsustainable. Can you make an argument um, for that to change and be completely inclusive of um, monogamous um, homosexual marriages? Can that fit within your work? Can you make that, can you make that leap? Can you envision something like that happening and if you can then what would be your arguments to support such such a change such a revelation i mean if i could it would be ongoing revelation and you know our own president nelson has talked about the restoration is unfolding um it's clear that that has not happened and so in in seeking to follow the prophet and sustain him, you know, if, uh, this is the revelation now, and we can be surprised one day. There's a lot we don't know. Um, but what the, the core question for me is, if we have a creator, and if he has inspired this that we disagree with, how are we going to respond if we disagree uh, with God even, you know, like... Uh, I think you're right that it should be a wrestle for all of us. 
to sit with it in, in humility and say, this is where I am. This is where we are. But things could change one day. But, my, but sometimes people, it seems to me like we can point to that. Oh, it's coming. It's coming. The prophets just haven't seen it yet and get young people really confused rather than, no, this is what we understand. God, God wants us to, to know. I'd like to know what Jennifer thinks about that. So can I just follow up real quick, though, Jacob? So how would you how would you explain our policy on blacks and priesthood using what you just said? Well, there's other things that we could bring up that um, that I think can be very confusing in hindsight. <laughs> I think they were confusing at the time for a number of people who did look ahead and see that things needed to be different. They believed in their heart through the light of Christ, through their conscience, through what they thought God was telling them, that the, the church's policies, beliefs at the time, were not consistent with Jesus's will or God's will. I mean, prophets are not infallible, so um, from the pulpit or in their personal lives. So I, I guess I'm just not, you seem, and have seen, because I know you, we talked about these things for several years, kind of intractable in, in being able to imagine, I guess, it different than what you think is for sure God's will. And in my mind, I, I'm not so sure it's God's will. And that's partly looking at historical things that we've traveled through uh, as a church. I would just say the prophets seem pretty sure about it. And so I'm, I'm trying to be consistent with what they have taught. And, and the only thing I would say, it's a great question, Jay, is um, the, the teaching around the family over the last 150 years has been much more core to our doctrine and our theology than anything said about race. And so there would have to be a whole lot of unraveling and undoing uh, to make that leap versus the 1979 leap. Now I'm just going to have to pay you back later for grilling me on on this. <laughs> that is an interesting point, though, that he brings up in the fact that the church is still trying to explain past statements on race uh, in some quarters. Um, is there, could there be a time for seeing that the same explanations would have to be quote explained away if something changed on same same sex marriage i mean i i know i know that's a question we can't answer here but it's it's an interesting thing to think about could, could i come back to just a, a distinction that i i drew earlier um because there really are two questions here and i want to i want to separate them uh just as we talk about them there is the deep theological question is our theology going to change? Uh, are we going to seal same-sex couples in the temple? Are we going to say that they can that this will be an eternal relationship? I think that that is something that I would welcome and something I would love to see. I, I think we're a long way away from that, just speaking practically. But there's also the question of enforcement. We don't have to change our theology at all to not excommunicate people to not disfellowship people, to preach that a heterosexual family is the ideal, but to welcome people who don't meet that ideal into our community, into our communion, into the body of Christ, doing the best that they can. Um, yeah. I, I think that 
we we and this is why I, I have had I'm so glad to have had experience with with other religions. Um, you know, this this is how the Catholic Church largely handles it. They teach that this is the ideal. They do not perform church weddings for same-sex couples, but they fellowship with them. They allow them to come in. They allow them to take communion. They allow them to participate in the body of Christ, even if they're not uh, not living up to the ideal that the church teaches. So I, I just think we need to have two separate discussions about what will ultimately happen with our, our theology and whether or not we're going to kick people out of the church and uh, and um, excommunicate them from the body of Christ uh, for something that I, I see no, no theological justification for doing. That's a good point. I like Do we have one more point? Uh, shall I read this from John Nasser? Yes. Our theology could change, of course, but I see the real problem is could it change in such a way where homosexual and heterosexual couples ultimately have the same status, e.g. exaltation? That's kind of a... Baby steps. And maybe on that note, we should... We should close here. Uh, I want to thank our guests uh, for a fascinating, important, inspiring conversation. Thank all three of you, Jennifer Finlayson Fife, Michael Austin, and Jacob Hess. Thanks for joining us and being honest and real and sharing your perspectives and expertise. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and found this information helpful, we ask that you rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from it. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, follow the link in the show notes below to find more information about her online courses, upcoming events, and her free Facebook group.